We're glad to have back a guest we've had on in the past. He has a new position with the new organization. Lad Everett is the director of One Pulse for America. They're a gun violent, violence excuse me, prevention group. They're founded by the actor and activist George Takai and Team Takai. You've seen a lot of great tweets from George. And this is in response to the mass shooting in the LGBTQ club in Orlando, Florida, that took place June 12, 2016, just weeks ago. One Pulse for America is an action-oriented group dedicated to closing the passing gap with pro-gun activists and thereby obtaining life-saving reforms in Congress and state and local legislatures. Prior to this, Ladd served as the Director of Communications of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence for 10 years. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Ladd Everett. Hey, Ladd, good afternoon. How you doing? Good, good. How are you today? Good. Thank you uh, for, for joining us. Um, sure. There are those that would say, as you did in your piece, that the shooting in Dallas was the NRA's prescription for black America in practice, because in Dallas, the NRA were the only winners. Let, let's talk about that and break that down in more uh, detail. Um, you, you know, we just we just saw again in, in Baton Rouge, uh, you know, another killing. I'm surprised uh, Donald Trump and Newt Gingrich and others haven't stood up and want to ban black people. Um, but uh, black men specifically. Uh, but let's talk about the NRA and not just the mindset of those that, you know, bow down to the NRA, but how they were truly, unfortunately, the real winners in Dallas. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think what we've seen in these recent shootings uh, targeting policemen is individuals who believe that they have some type of right to employ violence against government, um, you know, based on uh, grievances that they have. I think most of Americans would, um, or, or, or at least half of Americans, would say that they were deeply disturbed by the police shootings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. But I think, you know, not as many of us would say that we believe we have a right to essentially shoot a police officer in response. You know, the Constitution obviously provides a lot of peaceful methods to redress our grievances, uh, the courts, legislation, uh, the ballot box. Um, these individuals, for whatever reason, um, turned away from that and decided to use violence um, to address what they saw as government oppression. Uh, typically, when this happens, we associate it with right-wing extremism. You know, we've just come through, uh, you know, the last few years with Clive and Bundy and the takeover of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge, the occupation of sugar pine mines. So I think many of us associate it with right-wing extremism. What, what's interesting now is that we are seeing left-wing extremists. We're seeing a left-wing that is increasingly uh, favoring the use of violence for the first time in decades. And I think that's something that should alarm us all. But the, the common denominator here with, with these types of attacks is individuals who, who essentially believe that they have a right to employ political violence, and that's something we should be very concerned about. And this, in a sense, is really what the NRA does, or any gun, gun lobby, is, is to, to really fight the government oppression um, you know, by being armed and by, by having a force of arms, as you write in your piece. Uh, because like you say, you know, in a sense, they, they feel or seem to fear the same oppressive government, and they're using the same methods. They're just coming from different sides and, and shooting at different targets. Yeah, essentially, yeah. You know, you know, any of us could feasibly have grievances against our governments, you know, no matter what 
our political mindset is. Um, you know, you can be someone who's very passionate about left-wing politics and have a Democrat and president and feel very strongly about a given issue. You know, we saw that kind of passion, for example, uh, with the primary contest between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. So that's nothing new, and there's nothing wrong with, with um, what I would call passionate dissent against government. Um, what becomes very dangerous, however, is um, you know, when the, the, this belief that the NRA has promoted for so many decades, this belief that there is some type of individual right under the Second Amendment to basically um, you know, shoot uh, cops, military service members, elected officials, when one feels uh, oppressed or when one feels government has become tyrannical, the employment of that idea is something that then becomes very dangerous and which quickly uh, corrodes our democratic institutions that we cherish. You know, Lab, but the numbers don't add up, do they? I mean, when people say we need to be armed, certainly there's a Second Amendment right to bear arms, but we have more gun owners now than we've had in the history of our nation. As a matter of fact, you speak about the shooter, Johnson, who was uh, Micah Johnson in Dallas, who was armed to the teeth, SKS semi-automatic assault a rifle, a handgun, body armor. Um, the list goes on, and we're seeing this uh, more so from people that shoot and take out their grievances. Um, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, when you have this type of weaponry and this type of armor, um, do you feel that this technically can be classified as terrorism? I mean, some people would say the police are being terrorized by these types of groups or individuals um, who, who believe in, like you said, the same means to fight what they perceive uh, as oppression from the government. I think it's definitely terrorism, you know. I, I, you know, these, um, many of these shootings uh, that we're discussing here are, have political ends to them, right? I mean, these are individuals who wanted to achieve political goals. In the case of uh, the Baton Rouge and Dallas shootings, you know, clearly the goal was to intimidate law enforcement uh, to the point where they would uh, refrain from engaging what these individuals believe to be brutal tactics in policing. Um, you know, in the case of certain right-wing extremism, uh, you know, the Bundy Ranch, for example, it's been more about public lands and control of public lands and things along those lines. We've seen an attack on a Planned Parenthood center in Colorado, um, you know, uh, trying to intimidate women from having reproductive health care. So, you know, there's, there's lots of angry people in the United States. I think we're all aware of that in, the, in an era of Donald Trump. So, you know, the, the question is, um, you know, how do we live peacefully in a democracy? And, you know, I think I would argue that, number one... Okay, hold that thought, Lad, because we... I hold that thought. I don't want to miss any of those points. We'll be back with Lad Everett right after this. Don't go away. We're back. Happy Monday. Welcome, welcome back. It is the first day of the Republican convention in Cleveland, but we've had a lot of gun uh, massacres, and, and certainly the police have been targets. We're talking with Lad Everett, director of One Pulse for America, a gun violence prevention group founded by actor and activist George Takai and Team Takai in response to one of the mass shootings in Orlando at uh, Pulse, the LGBTQ club where people were slain on June 12, 2016, just weeks ago. Uh, Led, thank you for holding. Welcome back. You were about to give us a list. Please, I'm sorry for interrupting you. I didn't want to cut you off of the break. Number one. <laughs> oh, sure. I'm sorry. I don't even remember what I was laying out. Why don't we just start fresh? Okay, let's start fresh. There are more people now in the United States that bear arms, that own weapons than ever before. It's a, they, they say the numbers are that 20 to 30 at the site of the shooting massacre, if you will, in Dallas, 
20 or 30 of them had conceal and carry permits and not one of them used the gun they were carrying to help, help police officers, help others. They, like everyone else, ran from the gunfire and hid. And we've even heard officials in Dallas from the mayor of the police department talk about how this needs to be rethought. Today, as the uh, uh, today, just hours after what took place in Baton Rouge, as the Republican convention kicks off in Cleveland, in a state with open uh, carry, conceal and carry, and open carry, uh, certainly uh, John Kasich has been approached and you know has basically said, legally, my hands are tied. Um, it, do you think this is the beginning of reality for the future of Americans to see? It's not about taking your Second Amendment right to bear arms, but bearing an arm does not protect the public around you or yourself. The idea that the more of us that are armed, the safer we are, just has not proven to be true right now. Yeah, I do. I I really do sense a change in uh, our politics. Uh, I'm very confident that we're now headed on the right path. I think the scary thing for so many people right now is the type of violence we're seeing in this country, which which, you know, almost suggests anarchy. But I, I, I do feel we're on the right path. I, I think we have a Democratic Party now that is um, increasingly confident on this issue, which we saw with uh, Chris Murphy's filibuster and the incredible sit-in from John Lewis. Um, you know, I think we have an American people that, like you said, are looking at some of these arguments, uh, particularly this ridiculous argument about good guys with guns, and I think they're finally putting two and two together, and they're saying, you know, they're coming to conclusions like, well, you know what, the Orlando shooter was a concealed handgun permit holder. So we're supposed to arm other people like him to protect us from him? It, it just doesn't make any sense. So, you know, I, I, I do really believe that, that we've turned a corner. I think it started really with Hillary Clinton when she was first considering running for president, deciding that this was going to be her gold standard issue, that she was going to put all her weight and confidence in it. And then I think um, Democrats in Congress followed that lead. And I just I just think people, you know, as you suggested, are increasingly tired uh, with being afraid to see a movie or send their kids to school or whatever else it is. I agree with you. As a parent of two children, eight and nine, and somebody who doesn't own guns, we had this conversation yesterday uh, with some friends by my pool in the morning, and they are a gun owner. And I'm like, wow, rethinking that sleepover. There's something, there are many things I learned from your piece, lad, and a very great piece. And I, I write pieces. You're definitely a much better writer than I. The NRA, and this is something I didn't know, I know that they have put out a lot of propaganda. But is it true that they, the NRA, have put out propaganda telling African Americans specifically that gun control is racist and that they must prepare for war in their own government in order to truly be free? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's that's directly the message that they've sent to African Americans. Um, not long ago at their annual meeting, uh, Glenn Beck is a big favorite there for the NRA. He he frequently has been their featured speaker there and you know not long ago he did an entire speech about government oppression um, you know of certain minorities in this country and made the point explicitly that um, if African Americans had been better armed in the 1800s he cited the year 1850 as an example uh, that they might have been able to essentially kill their way uh, into vindicating their rights or out of trouble 
So, I mean, yeah, that's a message, you know, to be fair, that, that's an, a message the NRA sends to everyone. The NRA is telling everyone in this country that they have an individual right to employ political violence against our government. But, yes, it's been a particular area of focus for them in terms of how they uh, address African Americans. They tell them that gun control has a deeply racist history by focusing on um, gun laws that came well after our founding in the antebellum South. Um, and then they tell them, you know, uh, if you want to be, be sure you can vindicate your rights in this country, uh, stockpile weapons against your government. That's, that's the, uh, the best way to make yourself safe and free. And the problem with that is that when you get individuals like the Baton Rouge shooter and the Dallas shooter who, you know, either are dealing with mental health issues or, or they are dealing with anger management issues, all it takes is one guy with a, an assault rifle and high-capacity ammunition magazines to turn that ideology into an utter disaster. And unfortunately, that, that's the point we reach now, because we have uh, a right wing in this country that's been angry at Obama and, and cultural change for a long time. And now, unfortunately, we also have a left wing becoming increasingly violent at the site of police brutality. So. Um, we really need to speak about this. We have to have an open conversation about what it means to be part of a democracy and that it doesn't mean you get your way when you snap your fingers, that there are peaceful ways that we uh, redress our grievances and that employing violence like this does nothing but diminish all our rights. Well, I, I want to point out something else. Um, a, a former NRA past president, current board member, David Keene, has made the claim that the initial wave of gun control was instituted after the Civil War to deny blacks the ability uh, to uh, defend uh, themselves. Um, and also you talk about Glenn Beck, who uh, is a favorite of the NRA and has spoken to them saying, quote, universal access to firearms is indistinguishable from emancipation. Mm. And he goes on. First of all, how accurate is that claim? It's just, it's demented. I, I mean, I don't think it's accurate at all. Um, but this is a worldview that they're essentially pitching uh, to communities of color and, and people who have experienced discrimination. The truth is that gun laws uh, date back from literally the time that pilgrims crashed on the rocks in this continent. Uh, gun laws have been in place literally from the very first moment that men from Europe brought firearms to this continent, to the New World. Um, they've always been in place. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, universal access to firearms being, meaning emancipation, I mean, to me, that's just a very demented way to view the world. It's, a, it's, it's essentially a view where you are saying that what makes us a government is not our ability to vote, is not the fact that we now have representation in our legislatures, but it's this essential mutual suicide pact that we have by arming ourselves to the teeth and, and really threatening to kill each other um, if, if, if we believe that one another go too far. Um, you know, I, to me, that's anarchy. And I think to our founding fathers, uh, that was anarchy. And in fact, the author of the Second Amendment, James Madison, spoke at length about this in the Federalist Papers, the, the um, you know, Shays Rebellion and what he was seeing at that point in our history with uh, men taking up firearms and, and challenging laws in a way that was extra-constitutional. On the way to the studio, I was listening to a local uh, NPR, KPCC in Los Angeles talk show. Um, and as a matter of fact, they had a topic I was thinking we may talk about tomorrow, but I want to touch upon it with you, and that is rhetoric and how the rhetoric 
is feeding into or watering the seeds or fanning the flames of not just hatred, but then it's going um, a step further uh, with violence. Um, You write of um, the NRA stoking uh, animosity against law enforcement with their rhetoric um, that is inflammatory. Um, You talked about the jackbooted thugs letter. Tell us about the jackbooted thugs letter and talk about this stoking of the flames of hatred against law enforcement by the NRA. Yeah, well, the jackbooted thugs letter is pretty well known. It it, it was a letter that um, the NRA sent out as a fundraising letter um, in the mid-1990s. And in it, um, Wayne LaPierre um, had some very um, disturbing descriptions of law enforcement officers talking about them wearing uh, Nazi bucketed helmets, um, looking like storm, Nazi stormtroopers, kicking in doors, um, being willing to, quote-unquote, murder law-abiding citizens. Um, it so disturbed former President George H.W. Uh, Bush that he resigned from the NRA very publicly, and, uh, you know, that's another famous story. But um, what's interesting about the letter is literally months after that, uh, we had the Oklahoma City bombing by Timothy McVeigh, who once sent a uh, member of Congress a letter with an NRA decal on it. So, you know, rhetoric does have consequences, and the NRA has always been very, um, I don't know if you want to say sophisticated or devious at playing both sides of the fence, when it comes to selling law enforcement firearms and selling um, civilians and, in this case, African-Americans firearms. And they will use negative rhetoric against both camps if they believe it will help them better sell guns with one party or another. So simultaneously, uh, at times, we will see NRA leaders describing cops and law enforcement in disgusting terms uh, that would make most of us sick. And then at other times... We'll see them, you know, uh, NRA board member Ted Nugent is one example, uh, engaging in blatant, virulent racism against African Americans. And it all just depends on what audience they're messaging to and who they're trying to sell the next gun to. And one of my sincere hopes is that, um, you know, uh, these two parties will come together and understand the, o- the only group that is benefiting from incidents like Dallas and Baton Rouge is the gun industry and the NRA. There is no one else that walks away from that incident and has profited other than the gun industry. And, uh, you know, I wish the two sides could come together and see that. And I think one of the things that I'm really hoping for in the next few days is to begin to see law enforcement step forward and begin to maybe rethink their support for tougher gun laws a little bit more. There's a lot of rank-and-file cops out in this country uh, that have bought into NRA rhetoric and propaganda over the years. I hope at this point some of these incidents will make them rethink that a little bit and, and truly wonder, does the NRA have my best interests at heart? I want to take a caller, 888-6-LESLIE, 888-653-7543 is our number. Nick is joining us in Humboldt County, California, uh, listening from KGOE Radio. Nick, good afternoon. Question or comment for our guest, Lad Everett? Well, uh, I guess it's a comment. Um, I think this person in Baton Rouge, it's been reported by well, Tom Hartman, for one, and a couple other uh, uh, websites, that this person was also a sovereign citizen. And if you don't know who that is, I can explain a little bit. Vlad? Oh, I, I do. Sure. Okay. Well, so apparently it's, that's been, you know, the, uh, the police department actually 
uh, reported that they have found his, that literature and that sort of thing at his, uh, at his place. So, you know, that kind of throws something in there in the mix. I understand they're, they're very dangerous people, and uh, so that's all I really have to say. Lad? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. Uh, sovereign citizens are extremely dangerous. We've seen um, some gruesome shootings involving them in the past. A sovereign citizen is essentially someone um, who, who believes that they have um, no connection to rule of law under our Constitution and does not need to abide by our laws in this country. And that was true of the Baton Rouge uh, shooter. He did believe that he was part of a, of a certain nation um, that gave him, um, you know, that that made him totally outside our system of law. Um, you know, there's a lot of different extreme ideologies that are at play with many of these shooters, and in this case, um, in the case of the Baton Rouge shooter, um, that was definitely a factor. Uh, we thank you for your call, uh, caller. Um, <clears throat> just because we have a couple of minutes left, we have so much uh, to um, talk about and to get uh, with regard to this. The uh, shooters may, you know, we're, we're seeing that in Dallas and Baton Rouge there was some military background and training. Um, I heard some experts today also saying that they think there might be some degree of uh, mental illness. There are those on the right that would say the common denominator in all of these um, the common denominator, all these, this is a bad person, you know, with hatred. But we can't overlook the common denominator being the weapons and, and you know, how legally these people are accessing this type of weaponry and doing uh, such damage. Heck, we just saw a niece, somebody doing so much damage with a, with a truck. How much worse uh, with a gun, lad? Yeah, well, the, the NRA is always going to want a scapegoat, right? So after Newtown, you know, uh, Wayne LaPierre gets up at the podium and says, Let's put every American who's mentally ill in a national database, which is a curious position for a guy who claims to be about individual rights. Um, mental illness is not the problem here. Only 4% of interpersonal violence in this country can be directly attributed to mental illness. Is it a factor in many of these shootings? Sure, but so is substance abuse. Um, so is domestic violence. Um, you know, some of these guys just have anger management issues. It's not a case of mental illness. So, you know, I think very often we're in far too great a rush to diagnose someone as mentally ill who's never been formally diagnosed as such. Um, like you say, I, I agree with you, Leslie. I mean, at the end of the day, the common denominator with a shooting is a gun. You know, it's not rocket science. Uh, every other democracy has dealt with this problem, dealt with it effectively. Uh, they have uh, astronomically lower rates of gun death than we do. Um, there's nothing that they've done that we can't do, and we will do it. And I do believe that we're on the path to doing it. But there is certainly urgency here because, um, you know, we can't long sustain episodes of violence like we are seeing now. Uh, we have to turn the heat down. I thank you, for, and I agree with you 100%. Lad, Lad Everett, Director of One Pulse for America, former Director of Communications of the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. On Twitter, follow him at Lad Everett, L-A-D-D-E-V-E-R-I-T-T. And on Facebook, uh, you want a tinyurl.com forward slash One Pulse for America. 